75. The Middle Step There was a time when others would approach me for help with a problem. A time when I was decisive, capable, even authoritative. It was a crystalline day in Shadesmar, as Edolin, guarded as always by two Honorspren soldiers, climbed to the top of the walls of lasting integrity. During his weeks incarcerated in the fortress, he'd discovered that there were weather patterns in Shadesmar. They just weren't the same type as in the physical realm. When he reached the top of the wall, he could see a faint shimmer in the air. It was only visible if he could look a long distance. A kind of violet-pink haze. Crystalline, they called it. On days like these, plants in Shadesmar grew quickly enough to see the change with your eyes. Other types of weather involved spren feeling invigorated or dreary, or certain types of smaller spren getting more agitated. It was never about temperature or precipitation. From the top of the wall, he could really get a sense of the fortress's size. Lasting integrity was enormous, several hundred feet tall. It was also hollow and had no roof. Rectangular and resting on the small side, all four of its walls were perfectly sheer, without windows. No human city would ever have been built this way. Even your Athiru needed fields at its base and windows to keep the people from going mad. But lasting integrity didn't follow normal laws of nature. You could walk on the interior walls. Indeed, to reach the top, Adolin had strolled vertically up the inside of the fortress wall. His body thought he had been walking on the ground. However, at the end of the path, he'd reached the battlements. Getting onto them had required stepping off what seemed to be the edge of the ground. As he'd done so, gravity had caught his foot, then propelled him over so he was now standing at the very top of the fortress. He felt vertigo as he glanced down along a wall he'd recently treated as the ground. In fact, he could see all the way to the floor hundreds of feet below. Thinking about it gave him a headache. So he looked outward across the landscape, and the view, the view was spectacular. Lasting integrity overlooked a sea of churning beads lit by the cold sun so they shimmered and sparkled, an entire ocean of captured stars. Huge swells washed through the bay and broke into crashing falls of tumbling beads. It was mesmerizing, made all the more interesting by the lights that congregated and moved in the near distance. Tukar and the people who lived there reflected in the cognitive realm. The other direction had its own less dramatic charms. Rocky obsidian shores gave way to growing forests of glass, lifespren bobbing among the trees. Lifespren were larger here, though still small enough that he wouldn't have been able to see them save for the bright green glow they gave off. These lights blinked off and on, a behavior that seemed unique to this region of Shadesmar. Watching, Adolin could swear there was a coordination to their glows. They'd blink in rippling waves, synchronized, as if to a beat. He took it in for a moment. The view wasn't why he'd come, however. Not fully. Once he'd spent time drinking in the beauty, he scanned the nearby coast. 
Their camp was still there, tucked away a short walk into the highlands, nearer the trees. Godecki, Felt, and Molly waited for the results of his trial. With some persuasion, the honest Bren had allowed Godecki to come in, given him a little stormlight, and then let him heal Adolin's wound. The honor Spren had expelled Godecki soon after, but permitted Adolin to communicate with his team via letters. They'd traded, with his permission, a few of his swords to a passing caravan of reachers for more food and water. Non-manifested weapons were worth a lot in Shadesmar. The stump, Zoo, and the rest of Adolin's soldiers had left to bring word to his father— Though Adolin had initially anticipated a quick and dramatic end to his incarceration, the honor-spren hadn't wanted an immediate trial. He should have realized the punctilious spren would want time to prepare. Though aspects of the delay were frustrating, the wait favored him. The longer he spent among the honor-spren, the more chance he had to persuade them. Theoretically. So far, the spren of this fortress seemed about as easy to persuade as rocks. One other oddity was visible from this high perch. Gathering on the coast nearby was an unusual group of spren. It had begun about two weeks ago as a few scattered individuals, but those numbers grew each day. At this point, there had to be two hundred of them. They stood on the coast all hours of the day, motionless, speechless. Dead eyes. Storms, said Bayou. There are so many. Bayou was Adolin's primary jailer for excursions like this. He was a shorter honor spren and wore a full beard, squared like that of an ardent. Unlike many others, Bayou preferred to go about bare-chested, wearing only an old-style skirt, a little like an Alethi Takama. With his winged spear, he seemed like a depiction of a herald from some ancient painting. What happened to the ones you let in? Adolin asked. We put them with the others, Bayou explained. Everything about them seems normal, for dead eyes, though we don't have space left for more. We never expected. He shook his head. There were no lights of souls near those dead eyes. This wasn't a gathering of shard bearers in the physical realm. The dead eyes were moving of their own accord, coming up from the depths to stand out here, silent, watching. The fortress had quarters for dead eyes. Though Adolin had little love for these honors spren and their stubbornness, he had to admit there was honor in the way they treated fallen spren. The honor spren had dedicated themselves to finding and caring for as many as they could. Though they'd taken Maya and put her in with the others, they let Adolin visit her each morning to do their exercises together. While they wouldn't let her wander free, she was treated quite well but what would they do with so many? The honor spren had taken in the first group, but as more and more dead eyes arrived, the fortress had reluctantly shut its gates to them. It doesn't make any sense, Bayou said. They should all be wandering the oceans, not congregating here. What provoked this behavior? Has anyone tried asking them? Adolin asked. Dead eyes can't talk. Adolin leaned forward. Around his hands on the railing, pink crystal fuzz began to grow, the Shadesmar version of moss spreading because of the crystalline day. The distance was too great for him to distinguish one scratched-out face from another. 
However, he did notice when one vanished into mist. Those spren were shard blades, hundreds of them, more than he'd known existed. When their owners summoned them, their bodies evaporated from Shadesmar. Why were they here? Deadeyes usually tried to keep close to their owners, wandering through the ocean of beads. There is a connection happening, Bayou said. Deadeyes cannot think, but they are still spren, bound to the spirit web of Roshar herself. They can feel what is happening in this keep, that justice will finally be administered. If you can call it justice, Adolin said, to punish a man for what his ancestors did. You are the one who suggested this course, human, Bayou said. You took their sins upon you. This trial cannot possibly make remediation for the thousands murdered, but the dead eyes sense what is happening here. Adolin glanced at his other guard, a veteran. She wore a breastplate and a steel cap, both formed from her substance, of course, above close-cropped hair. As usual, she stared forward, her lips closed. She rarely had anything to add. It is time for today's legal training, Bayou said. You have very little time until the high judge returns and your trial begins. You had best spend it studying instead of staring at the dead eyes. Let's go. Vale was really starting to hate this fortress. Lasting integrity was built like a storming monolith, a stupid brick of a building with no windows. It was impossible to feel anything other than trapped while inside these walls. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst was how Honor Spren had no respect whatsoever for the laws of nature. Vale opened the door from the small building she shared with Adolin, looking out at what seemed to be an ordinary street. A walkway of worked stone led from her front door and passed by several other small buildings before dead-ending at a wall. However, as soon as she stepped out, her brain started to panic. Another flat surface of stone hung in the air above her instead of the sky. It was clustered with its own buildings, and people, mostly honor spren, walked along its pathways. To her left and right were two other surfaces, much the same. The actual sky was behind her. She was walking on the inside surface of one of the walls of the fortress. It squeezed her mind, making her tremble. Shalon, Vale thought. You should be leading. You'd like the way this place looks. Shalon did not respond. She huddled deep within, refusing to emerge. Ever since they'd discovered that Pattern had been lying to them, probably for years, she had become increasingly reclusive. Vale was able to coax her out now and then. But lately, something dangerous had come with her, something they were calling formless. Vale wasn't certain it was a new persona. If it wasn't, would that be even worse? Vale let Radiant take over. Radiant wasn't so bothered by the strange geometry, and she took off down the path without feeling vertigo, though even she had trouble sometimes. The worst parts were the strange halfway zones at the corners where each plane met, where you had to step from one wall to another. 
The honors friend did it easily, but Radiant's stomach did somersaults every time she had to. Shalon, Radiant thought. You should sketch this place. We should carry drawings with us when we leave. Nothing. Honorspren liked to keep the hour exactly, so the bells told Radiant she was on time as she turned up the side of the wall toward the sky, passing various groups of Spren going about their business. This wall of the fortress, the southern plain, was the most beautified, with gardens of crystalline plants of a hundred different varieties. Fountains somehow flowed here, the only free water Radiant had seen in Shadesmar. She passed one fountain that surged and fell in powerful spouts. If a spray got beyond about 15 feet high, the water would suddenly break off the top and stream down toward the actual ground rather than back toward the wall plain. Storms. This place didn't make any kind of sense. Radiant turned away from the fountain and tried to focus on the people she was passing. She hadn't expected to find anyone other than Honorspren in here, considering how strict the fortress was. But apparently its xenophobic policy had only been instituted a year ago. Any other people then living inside the fortress were allowed to stay, though they'd be forbidden re-entry if they left. That meant ambassadorial delegations from the other Spren nations, as well as some tradespeople and random wanderers, had been grandfathered into the Honor Spren lockdown. Most importantly, 17 humans lived here. Without direction from Shalon, and with the Honor Spren taking their time preparing their trial, Radiant and Vale had reached a compromise. They'd find Rastaris, the person Marais had sent them to locate. They wouldn't take any actions against him, unless they could get Shalon to decide but Radiant was perfectly willing to locate him. This man, the phantom leader of the Sons of Honor, was a key part of this entire puzzle, and she was intensely curious why Marais wanted him so badly. Rastaris was, according to Marais, a human male. Radiant carried a description of the man in her pocket, though none of the Honorspren Vale had asked knew the name. And unfortunately, the description was rather vague. A shorter human with thinning hair. Marais said Rastaris was a secretive type and would likely be using an alias and perhaps a disguise. He was supposedly paranoid, which made perfect sense to Radiant. Rastaris led a group of people who had worked to restore the singers and the fused. The coming of the Everstorm had led to the fall of multiple kingdoms, the deaths of thousands, and the enslavement of millions. The Sons of Honor were deplorable for seeking these things. True, it wasn't clear their efforts had in fact influenced the return, but she could understand why they wanted to hide. Upon first entering the fortress, she'd asked to be introduced to the other humans residing in the place. In response, the Honor Spren had given her the full list of all humans living here. With limited locations to search, she'd assumed her task would be easy. Indeed, it had started out that way. She'd started with the largest group of people, a caravan of traders from a kingdom called Nalthus, a place out in the darkness, beyond the edges of the map. Vale had chatted with them at length, discovering that Azure, 
who had moved on from the fortress by now, was from the same land. Radiant had trouble conceptualizing what it meant for there to be kingdoms out away from the continent. Did Azure's people live on islands in the ocean? No, Vale thought. We're avoiding the truth, Radiant. It means something else, like Marais told us. Those people came from another land, another world. Radiant's mind reeled at the thought. She took a deep breath, slowing near a group of trees, real ones from the physical realm, kept alive with stormlight instead of sunlight, that were the centerpieces of this park. The tops were so high that when leaves fell off, they drifted down toward the real ground, though in the middle of the fortress. Shalan, Radiant thought. You could come and talk to people from other worlds. This is too big for Vale and me. Shalan stirred, but as she did, that darkness moved with her. She quickly retreated. Let's focus on today's mission, Radiant, Vale said. Radiant agreed and forced Vale to emerge. She could handle the strange geography. She had to. She put her head down and continued. None of the travelers from Nalthus looked like Rastaris, or seemed likely to be him in disguise. The next handful on her list had been horn eaters. Apparently, there was a clan of them who lived in Shadesmar. She doubted any were Rastaris, but she'd interviewed each of them just in case. That done, Vale had been left with five people. Four turned out to be wanderers. None had been open about their pasts, but over the weeks she'd met with them one by one. After conversing with each, she had reported on them to Marais. He had eliminated each of those as possibilities. Now, only a single name remained on her list. This person was the most reclusive of them all, but was male, and the descriptions of him from the honor spren indicated that he was probably her quarry. Today, she would finally catch a glimpse of him. With the subject confirmed, she could call Marais, find out what message she was supposed to deliver to Rastaris, then be done with this mission. The target called himself Sixteen. He supposedly came out of his home once every 16 days exactly. The regularity of it amused the honor spren, who suffered the odd fellow because of the novelty. No one knew how he survived without food, and no one reported a terrible stench or anything like that from him, though he didn't ever seem to bathe or empty a chamber pot. Indeed, the more she'd learned about him, the more Vale was certain this mysterious man was her target. His home was a small box built near the statue garden. Vale had made a habit of visiting this garden, where she tried to coax Shalon out by drawing. It worked occasionally, though Shalon usually retreated after a half hour or so of sketching. Today, Vale curled up on a bench with a sketch pad, coat enveloping her, hat shading her eyes. Today was the day that Sixteen would emerge, assuming he followed his pattern. All she had to do was wait and not act suspicious. Shalan, Vale said, opening the sketchbook. See, it's time to draw. Shalan started to emerge. 
Unfortunately, a faint humming sound made her panic, and Vale was thrust back into control. She sighed, glancing to the side, to where Pattern walked among the statues, which she'd been told were of honor spren, killed in the recreants. Tall men and women with heroic builds, and clothing that, though made of stone, seemed to ripple in the wind. How odd that they'd made these. After all, the real individuals were still around, though dead-eyed. Pattern bobbed over to her. He was easy to tell from other cryptics. He had an excitable spring to his step, while others slunk or crept, more furtive. I thought you were watching the Nalthians today, Vale said. I was, he said, plopping down on the bench beside her. But Vale, I do not think any of them are Rastaris. They do not look like him at all. They do not even look like people from Roshar. Why do you think Azure appeared so much like an Alethi when these have the wrong features? Don't know, Vale said, pretending to sketch. But this Rastaris could be using something like light weaving. I need you to watch them carefully. I am sorry, Pattern said, his pattern slowing like a wilting plant. I miss being with you. You're worried you'll miss something important, traitor, Shalon thought, and want an excuse to keep spying on me. Vale sighed again. She reached over and put her hand on Pattern's. He hummed softly. We need to confront him, Radiant thought. We need to find out exactly why he is lying. Vale wasn't so certain. It was all growing so messy. Pattern, Shalon's past, the mission they were on. She needed Shalon to remember. That would solve so much. Wait, Radiant thought. Vale, what do you know? What do you remember that I do not? Vale, Pattern asked. Can I talk to Shalon? I can't force her to emerge, Pattern, Vale said. Storm winds. She suddenly felt so tired. We can try later, if you want. For now, Sixteen is going to come out of that house in a few minutes. I need to be ready to intercept him in a way that reveals his face, but doesn't make him suspicious of me. Pattern hummed. Do you remember, he said softly, when we first met on the boat with Yasna? Mmm, you jumped in the water. She was so shocked. Nothing shocks Yasna. That did. I barely remember. I was so new to your realm. That wasn't the first time we met, though, Radiant said, sitting up straighter. Shalon had spoken oaths before, after all. She had a shard blade. Yes. If he had been human, his posture would have been described as unnaturally still. Hands clasped, seated primly. His pattern moved, expanding, contracting, rotating upon itself like an explosion. I think, he finally said, 
We have been doing this wrong, Radiant. I once tried to help Shalan remember, and that was painful for her. Too painful. So I started to think it was good for her not to remember. And the lies were delicious. Nothing is better than a lie with so much truth. The holes in her past, Radiant said. Shalon doesn't want to remember them. She can't, at least not yet. When Shalon summoned you as a blade, Radiant said, and killed her mother, were you surprised? Did you know she was going to do something that drastic? I don't remember, Pattern said. How can you not remember? Radiant pressed. He remained quiet. Radiant frowned, considering the lies she'd caught him in during the last few weeks. Why did you want to bond a human, Pattern? Radiant found herself asking. In the past, you've seemed so certain that Shalon would kill you, yet you bonded her anyway. Why? This is a dangerous line of questioning, Radiant, Vale warned. Be careful. Mmm, Pattern said, humming to himself. Why? So many answers to a why. You want the truest one. But any such truth is also a lie, as it pretends to be the only answer. He tipped his head to the right, looking toward the sky. Though, so far as she knew, he didn't see forward, as he didn't have eyes. He seemed to sense all around him. She glanced in the same direction. Colors shimmered in the sky. It was a crystalline day. You and the others, Pattern said, refer to Shadesmar as the world of the Spren, and the physical realm as your world, or the real world. That is not true. We are not two worlds, but one. And we are not two peoples, but one. Humans, spren, two halves, neither complete. I wanted to be in the other realm, see that part of our world. And I knew danger was coming. All spren could sense it. The Oath Pact was no longer working correctly. Void Spren were sneaking onto Roshar, using some kind of back door. Two halves cannot fight this enemy. We need to be whole. And if Shalon killed you? Mmm, I was sure you would. But together, we cryptics thought we needed to try. And I volunteered. I thought, maybe even if I die, it will be the step other spren need. You cannot reach the end of a proof without many steps in the middle, Shalon. I was to be the middle step. He turned toward her. I no longer believe you will kill me. Or perhaps I wish to no longer believe you will kill me. Aha. Radiant wanted to believe. She wanted to know. 
This will lead to pain, Vale warned. Can I trust you, Pattern? Radiant asked. Any answer will be a lie, he said. I cannot see the future like our friend Renarin, ha ha. Pattern, have you lied to us? His pattern wilted. Yes. Radiant took a deep breath. And have you been spying on us? Have you been using the cube Marais gave us in secret? I'm sorry, Radiant, he said softly. I couldn't think of another way. Please answer the questions. I have, he said, his pattern growing even smaller. There, Radiant thought. Was that so hard? We should have asked him right away, Vale. It was only then that she noticed, deep inside, that Shalon was seething, twisting about herself, trembling, fuming, alternating between terror and anger. That didn't seem good. Patterns, patterns swirled small and tight. I try to be worthy of trust. That is not a lie. But I have brought someone for Shalan to meet. I think it is important. He stood with a smooth, inhuman motion, then gestured behind him with one long-fingered hand. Radiant frowned and glanced over her shoulder. Leaves from the trees farther up the plain lazily drifted down the central corridor. A faint shimmer dusted the air and a small crystal tree started to grow in miniature on the bench beside her hand. Standing near a statue behind them was a dark figure wearing a stiff robe, like patterns, but dustier, and a head trapped in shadow, twisted and wrong. Damnation, Vale thought. Shalon emerged. She grabbed Radiant shoved her away someplace dark and small, and slammed the door shut. Shalon, Vale thought, then her voice crumpled. She should remain sectioned away. In the past, they hadn't talked to one another this way. They'd simply taken turns being in control, as they were needed. Shalon was in control. The other two became whispers. No, she said to Pattern. We are not doing this. But, he said, no, she said, I want nothing from you, Pattern. You are a traitor and a liar. You have betrayed my trust. He wilted, flopping onto the bench. Shalon saw movement from the corner of her eye and spun, her heart thundering in her ears. The small building she'd come here to watch, Sixteen's home, had opened, and a furtive figure had emerged, hunched over. Face hidden in the cowl of a cloak, the figure hurried through the statue park. Excellent. It was time to fulfill Marais's mission. Shalon, Vale whispered. She ignored the voice and settled down on the bench, acting nonchalant as she opened her notebook. Vale's plan had included wandering through the statue park, idly flipping through her notebook, then bumping into Sixteen hopefully getting a good look at his face. Unfortunately, Shalon wasn't in position yet to do that.
She'd been distracted by Pattern and his lies. She stood and meandered toward the statue garden, trying to appear non-threatening. She needed to determine for certain that 16 was her target. Then, then what? Kill him. What are you doing? Vale thought. Such a distant, annoying voice. Couldn't she quiet it entirely? You were the one who wanted to go forward with Marais's plan, Shalon thought. Well, I agree. So two of us have decided. I wanted to gather information, Vale thought. I wanted to use it against him. Why are you suddenly so aggressive? Because this was exactly who Shalon was, who she'd always been. She stalked toward the statue garden. Radiant was, of course, screaming and railing at her, but she was outvoted. Shalon had been watching and learning these last months, and she'd picked up some things from Vale. She knew to get into Sixteen's blind spot, then stop and appear like she was sketching a statue. So when he turned to glance around, she seemed unremarkable. She knew to glide forward when he turned away. She knew to step carefully, putting the heel of her foot down first and rolling toward the toe. She knew to walk on the sides of her feet as much as possible, not letting the flats slap. She got right up behind Sixteen as he hunched over, fiddling with some notes. She grabbed him by the shoulder, then spun him around. His hood fell, revealing his face. He was Shin. There was no mistaking that pale, almost sickly skin and those childlike eyes. Rastari's was a short, alethi man with wispy hair. This man was short, yes, but completely bald and was not alethi. So unless Marais was wrong, and Rastaris was a light weaver, this was not her man. He shouted and said something to her in a language she didn't recognize. She released him, and he fled toward his home. Her heart thumping in her chest, she pulled her hand out of the satchel. She hadn't even realized she'd reached into that, for a weapon. She didn't need it. This wasn't him. Pattern walked up having recovered some of his characteristic perkiness. There was no sign of the other spren he'd wanted her to meet. Well, he said, that was exciting. But this is not him, is it? No, Shalon said. It's not. Shalon, I need to explain to you what I've been doing. No, Shalon said, covering her pain. It is done. Let's move forward instead. Mmm, Pattern said. I, what has happened to you? Something has changed. Are you Vale? No, Shalon said. I'm me, and I've finally made a difficult decision that was a long time coming. Come on, we need to report to Marais. His intel was wrong. Rastaris is not in this fortress. 76. Harmony. Such skills, like my honor itself, are now lost to time. Weathered away, crushed to dust and scattered to the ends of the Cosmere. I am a barren tree of a human being. 
I am the hollow that once was a mighty peak. The sibling refused to speak to Navani. She lowered her hand and stared at the garnet vein in the wall. Such a wonderful secret, in plain sight, surrounding her all this time. So common, your eyes passed over it, and if you noticed it at all, you remarked only briefly, simply another pattern in the strata. The soul of Eurythiru had been watching her all along. Perhaps if Navani had discovered it sooner, they could have achieved a different result. She replaced her hand on the vein. I'm sorry, she whispered. Please know that I'm sorry, truly. For the briefest moment, she thought the sibling would respond this time. Navani felt something, faint as the movement of a shadow deep within the ocean. No words came. With a sigh, Navani left the crystal vein and wound her way through the shelves of the small library to reach her desk beside the door. Today, in addition to the guard, Raboniel's daughter, with the top knot and the vacant eyes, sat on the floor right inside. Navani settled onto her seat, trying to ignore the insane fused. Notes and half-finished experiments cluttered her desk. She didn't have the least bit of interest in continuing them. Why would she? Everything she'd attempted so far had been a sham. She wrote out her daily instructions to the scholars. She was having them perform tests on Voidspren fabrials, which Raboniel had delivered before everything went wrong. She gave this to a messenger, then sat there staring. Eventually, Raboniel herself made an appearance, wearing an Alethi hava that fit her surprisingly well. Clearly a good dressmaker had tailored it to the fused's taller, more broad-shouldered frame. One might have thought her form would make her unfeminine, particularly with the unpronounced bust common to most singer femaleans. Instead, with the excellent cut and the confidence of her stride, Raboniel wore the dress as if it had always been designed to accentuate someone of height, power, and poise. She had made this fashion her own. Adolin would have approved. At least he was safe. Adolin, Renarin, Yasna, Dalinar, and little Gav. Her entire family safe from the invasion and the mess Navani had made. It was one small blessing she could thank the Almighty for sending her. Raboniel had brought a stool, a low one, so that when she sat on it, she was at eye level with Navani. The fused set a basket on the floor, then she pulled out a bottle of burgundy wine. A shin vintage, sweeter than traditional Alethi wines, known as anamostha, a shin wine made from grapes. Your journals, Raboniel said, indicate you are fond of this vintage. You read my journals? Navani said. Of course, Raboniel said, setting out two glasses. You would have wisely done the same in my position. She uncorked the bottle and poured half a cup for Navani. She didn't drink. Raboniel didn't force her, instead inspecting the wine with an expert eye, then taking a sip. 
Ah, yes, she said. That is a taste infused with memory. Grapes. Your ancestors never could get them to live outside Shinovar. Too cold, I believe. Or perhaps it was the lack of soil. I found that explanation odd, as grapevines seem similar to many of our native plants. I wasn't there when your kind came to our world. My grandmother, however, always mentioned the smoke. At first, she thought you had strange skin patterns. But that was because so many human faces had been burned or marked by soot from the destruction of the world they left behind. She talked about the way your livestock moaned and cried from their burns. The result of humans surge binding without oaths, without checks. Of course, that was before any of us understood the surges. Before the spren left us for you. Before the war started. Navani felt the hair go up on the back of her neck as she listened. Storms. This creature, she had lived during the shadow days, the time before history. They had no primary accounts of those days. Yet one sat before her, drinking wine from Navani's secret stash, musing about the origins of humanity. So long ago, Raboniel said, with a soft, almost indistinguishable cadence to her words. So very, very long ago. What has it been? Seven thousand years? I don't think you can comprehend how tired I am of this war, Navani. How tired all of us are. Your heralds, too. Then let's end it, Navani said. Declare peace. Withdraw from the tower and I will convince Dalinar to engage in talks. Raboniel turned her wine cup around, as if trying to see the liquid within from different angles. You think talks haven't been tried? We are born to fight one another, Navani. Opposites. At least, so I thought. I always assumed that if Stormlight and Voidlight could be forced to truly mix, then poof. They'd annihilate one another, much as we're doing to one another in this endless war. Is that what this is all about? Navani asked. Why you want me to combine the lights so badly? I need to know if you're right, Raboniel said. If you are, then so much of what I've planned will collapse. I wonder whether sometimes I can't see clearly anymore, whether I assume what I want to be true is true. You live long enough, Navani, and you forget to be careful. You forget to question. Raboniel nodded toward Navani's desk. No luck today? No interest, Navani said. I think it is time for me to accept your initial offer and start carrying water. Why waste yourself like that? Raboniel asked, her rhythm becoming intense. Navani, you can still defeat me. 
If it wasn't possible for humans to outthink the fused, you'd have fallen during the first few returns. The first few desolations, as you call them. Instead, you always pushed us back. You fought with stones, and you beat us. My kind pretends we know so much. But during many returns, we'd find ourselves struggling to catch up to your kind. That is our terrible secret. We hear the rhythms. We understand Roshar and the Spren. But the rhythms don't change. The Spren don't change. If you and I discover this secret together, you'll be able to use it better than I will. Watch and see. At the very least, prove me wrong. Show me that our two lights can meld and mix as you theorize. Navani considered it, those storms she knew she shouldn't have. It was another trick, another catalyst added to the system to push the reaction forward. Yet Navani couldn't lie to herself. She did want to know. As always, questions teased her. Questions were disorder awaiting organization. The more you understood, the more the world aligned, the more the chaos made sense, as all things should. I've run into a problem, Navani said, finally taking a sip from her cup. I can make the two lights intersect. I can get them to pool around the same gemstone, swirling out like smoke caught in a current of air. But they won't mix. Opposites, Raboniel said, leaning forward to look at the diagrams and notes Navani had made on each failed attempt. No, merely inert substances, Navani said. The vast majority of elements, when combined, produce no reaction. I'd have long ago named these two things immiscible if I hadn't seen Towerlight. It is what gave me the original idea, Raboniel said. I decided if there was a hybrid between honor's light and cultivations, there must be a reason no one had mixed odium's light with either. Questions are the soul of science, Navani said, sipping her wine. But assumptions must be proven, ancient one. From my research, I believe these two aren't opposites, but it isn't proven to me yet. And to prove it? We need an emulsifier, Navani said. Something that causes them to mix. Unfortunately, I can't fathom what such an emulsifier would be. Though it might be related to sound. I only recently learned that stormlight responds to tones. Yes, Raboniel said, taking a sphere off the desk. The sounds of Roshar. Can you hear the light? Navani asked. Raboniel hummed, then thought to nod her response. She held up a diamond, crystalline and pure, filled with stormlight from the high storm the day before. You have to concentrate and know what you're seeking to hear it from a sphere. A pure tone, extremely soft. Navani hit the proper tuning fork, letting the tone ring in the room. Raboniel nodded. Yes, that is it, exactly the same. Only, Navani sat up. Only? 
The sphere's tone has a rhythm to it, Raboniel explained, eyes closed as she held the sphere. Each light has a rhythm. Honors is stately. Cultivations is stark and staccato, but builds. And odiums? Chaos, she said, but with a certain strange logic to it. The longer you listen, the more sense it makes. Navani sat back, sipping her wine, wishing she had access to Rushu and the other scholars. Raboniel had forbidden her from drawing on their expertise in this matter, giving the problem to Navani alone. Navani, who wasn't a scholar. What would Yasna do in this situation? Well, other than find a way to kill Raboniel. Navani felt the answers were right in front of her. So often that was the case with science. The ancient humans had fought with stone weapons, but the secrets to metallurgy had been within their grasp. Does tower light have a tone? Navani asked. Two tones, Raboniel said, opening her eyes and setting down the stormlight sphere. But they aren't simply the tones of cultivation and of honor. They are different changed, so that they are in harmony with one another. Curious, Navani said. And is there a rhythm to it? Yes, Raboniel said. Both tones adopted, harmonizing as they play the same rhythm. A symphony combining honor's control and cultivation's ever-building majesty. Their tower-light spheres had all run out by now and Raboniel had no way to restore them, so there was nothing for them to check. Plants grow by stormlight, Navani said, if you beat the proper rhythm in their presence. An old agricultural trick, Raboniel said. It works better with lifelight, if you can find some. Why, though, Navani asked, why does light respond to tones? Why is there a rhythm that makes plants grow? Navani dug in her materials and began setting up an experiment. I have asked myself this question many times, Raboniel said. But it seems like asking why gravity pulls. Must we not accept some fundamentals of science as baselines? That some things in this world simply work? No, we don't have to, Navani said. Even gravity has a mechanism driving it. There are proofs to show why the most basic addition problems work. Everything has an explanation. I have heard, Raboniel said, that the lights respond to sound because it is reminiscent of the voice of the shards, commanding them to obey. Navani hit the tuning forks, touched them to their respective gemstones, then put them in place. A thin stream of stormlight ran from one gemstone, a thin stream of void light from the other. They met together at the center, swirling around an empty gemstone. Neither light entered it. Void light and stormlight, Navani said. The voices of gods, or perhaps something older than that. The reason the beings called gods spoke the way they did. Raboniel came in close, 
shoulder to shoulder with Navani as they observed the streams of light. You said that stormlight and lifelight make a rhythm together when they mix, she said. So if you could imagine a rhythm that mixed stormlight and void light, what would it be like? Those two, Raboniel said. It wouldn't work, Navani. They are opposites. One orderly, organized, the other. Her words drifted off, and her eyes narrowed. The other, chaotic, Raboniel whispered, but with a logic to it, an understandable logic. Could we perhaps contrast it? Chaos always seems more powerful when displayed against an organized background. Finally, she pursed her lips. No, I cannot imagine it. Navani tapped the rim of her cup, inspecting the failed experiment. If you could hear the rhythms, Raboniel said, you'd understand. But that is beyond humans. Sing one for me, Navani said. Honor's tone and rhythm. Raboniel complied, singing a pure, vibrant note, the tone of stormlight, the same as made by the tuning fork. Then she made the tone waver, vibrate, pulse in a stately rhythm. Navani hummed along, matching the tone, trying to affix it into her mind. Raboniel was obviously overemphasizing the rhythm making it easier for her to recognize. Change now, Navani said, to Odium's rhythm. Raboniel did so, singing a discordant tone with a violent, chaotic rhythm. Navani tried to match it with Honor's tone. She had vocal training, like any light-eyed woman of her don. However, it hadn't been an area of express study for her. Though she tried to hold the tone against Raboniel's forceful rhythm, she quickly lost the note. Raboniel cut off, then softly hummed a different rhythm. That was a fine attempt, Raboniel said. Better than I've heard from other humans. But we must admit you simply aren't built for this kind of work. Navani took a drink, then swirled the wine in her cup. Why did you want me to sing those rhythms? Raboniel asked. What were you hoping to accomplish? I thought that perhaps if we melded the two songs, we could find the proper harmony that would come from a combination of stormlight and voidlight. It won't be easy, Raboniel said. The tones would need to change to find the harmony. I've tried this many times, Navani, and always failed. The songs of honor and odium do not mesh. Have you tried it with a human before? Navani asked. Of course not. Humans, as we just proved, can't hold to a tone or rhythm. We proved nothing, Navani said. We had a single failed experiment. She set her cup on the table, then crossed the room and dug through her things. She emerged with one of her arm sheaths, in which she'd embedded a clock and other devices. Like other stormlight fabrials in the tower, it didn't work any longer. But it was rigged to hold a long sequence of gemstones. Navani ripped off the interior leather of the sheath, 
then settled at the table and fiddled with the screws and set new gemstones full of stormlight into it. What is this? Raboniel said. You can hear the songs and rhythms of Roshar, Navani said. Perhaps it's merely because you have better hearing. Raboniel hummed a skeptical rhythm, but Navani continued setting the gemstones. We can hear them because we are the children of Roshar, Raboniel said. You are not. I've lived here all my life, Navani said. I'm as much a child of this planet as you are. Your ancestors were from another realm. I'm not speaking of my ancestors, Navani said, strapping the sheath on so the flats of the gemstones touched her arm. I'm speaking of myself. She reset her experiment on the table, sending new lines of stormlight and voidlight out of gemstones, making them swirl at the center around an empty one. Sing honor's tone and rhythm again, ancient one, Navani asked. Raboniel sat back on her stool, but complied. Navani closed her eyes, tightening her arm sheath. It had been built as a fabril, but she wasn't interested in that function. All she wanted was something that would hold large gemstones and press them against her skin. She could feel them now, cool but warming to her touch. Infused gemstones always had a tempest inside. Was there a sound to them too? A vibration? Could she hear it in there? The tone? The rhythm? With Raboniel singing, she thought she could. She matched that tone and felt something on her arm. The gemstones reacting, or rather the stormlight inside reacting. There was a beat to it, one that Raboniel's rhythm only hinted at. Navani could sing the tone and feel the gemstones respond. It was like having a stronger singer beside her. She could adapt her voice to match. The stormlight itself guided her, providing a control with a beat and rhythm. Navani added that rhythm to her tone, tapping her foot, concentrating. She imagined a phantom song to give it structure. Yes, Raboniel said, cutting off. Yes, that's it. Odium's rhythm now, Navani said to Honor's tone and beat. Raboniel did so, and it struck Navani like a wave, making her tone falter. She almost lost it, but the gemstones were her guide. Navani sang louder, trying to hold that tone. In turn, Raboniel sang more forcefully. No, Navani thought, taking a breath, then continuing to sing. No, we can't fight. She took Raboniel's hand, singing the tone, but softer. Raboniel quieted as well. Holding the fused's hand, Navani felt as if she were reaching for something. Her tone changed slightly. Raboniel responded, their two tones moving toward one another, step by step, until harmony. The rhythms snapped into alignment. A burst of chaotic notes from Raboniel, bounded by a regular orderly pulse from Navani. Heartbeats, drumbeats, signals, together. 
Navani reached over and placed their clasped hands on the empty gemstone at the center of the experiment, holding them there as they sang for an extended moment in concert, in tandem, a pure harmony where neither took control. The two of them looked at each other, then fell silent. Carefully, they removed their hands to reveal a diamond glowing a vibrant black-blue, an impossible color. Raboniel trembled as she picked the gemstone out of its place, then held it up, humming a reverential rhythm. They did not annihilate one another, as I assumed. Indeed, as part of me hoped. You were right, Navani. Remarkably. I have been proven wrong. She turned the gemstone in her fingers. I can name this rhythm. The rhythm of war. Odium and honor mixed together. I had not known it before today, but I recognize its name. I know this as surely as I know my own. Each rhythm carries with it an understanding of its meaning. The sphere they had created was different from Zeth's, blue instead of violet, and lacking the strange distortion. Navani couldn't be certain, but it seemed to her that was what Raboniel had been seeking. Ancient one, Navani said. Something confuses me. Why would you have preferred that these two annihilate one another? Navani had an inkling why but she wanted to see what she could prompt the fused to reveal. Raboniel sat for a long time, humming softly to herself as she inspected the gemstone. She seemed fascinated by the motion within. The stormlight and the voidlight mixed to form something that surged in brilliant, raging storms, then fell still, peaceful and quiet between. Do you know? The fused finally asked, how honor was killed. I am not certain I accept that he was. Oh, he was. At least the being you call the Almighty, the being who controlled the shard of power that was honor, is dead. Long dead. Do you know how? No, neither do I, Raboniel said. But I wonder. Navani sat back in her seat. Surely, if it is true, and my husband says it is so, so I accept the possibility, then the mechanisms of the deaths of gods are far beyond the understanding of humans and fused alike. And did you not tell me earlier that everything has a mechanism? The gods give us powers. What are those powers? Gravitation, division transformation, the fundamental surges that govern all things. You said that nothing simply is. I accept that, and your wisdom. But by that same logic, the gods, the shards, must work not by mystery, but by knowledge. She turned the gemstone in her fingers, then met Navani's eyes. Honor was killed using some process we do not yet understand. I assume, from things I have been told, that some opposite was used to tear his power apart. 
I thought if I could discover this opposite light, then we would have power over the gods themselves. Would that not be the power to end a war? Storms. That was what he'd wanted. That was what Gavilar had been doing. Gemstones. Void light. A strange sphere that exploded when affixed to a fabril, when mixed with another light. Gavilar Colin, king, husband, occasional monster, had been searching for a way to kill a god. Suddenly, the extent of his arrogance and his magnificent planning snapped together for Navani. She knew something Raboniel did not. There was an opposite to void light. It wasn't stormlight, nor was it this new mixed light they'd created. But Navani had seen it, held it. Her husband had given it to Zeth, who had given it to her. By the holiest name of the Almighty, she thought, it makes sense. But like all great revelations, it led to a multitude of new questions. Why? How? Raboniel stood up, completely oblivious to Navani's epiphany. The fused tucked away the gemstone, and Navani forced herself to focus on this moment, this discovery. I thought for certain it was something about the nature of Odium's power, contrasting Honor's power, that led to the destruction, Raboniel said. I was wrong, and you have proven exceedingly helpful in leading me to this proof. Now I must abandon this line of reasoning and focus on my actual duty, the securing of the tower. And your promise that you would leave? If I helped you find this light? I'm sorry, Raboniel said. Next time, try not to be so trusting. In the end, Navani whispered, you are his, and I am honors. Unfortunately, Raboniel said, you may remain here and continue whatever other research you wish. You have earned that and my gratitude. If you would like to seek a simple job in the tower instead, I will arrange it. Consider your options, then tell me your wishes. Raboniel hesitated. It is rare for a fused to be in the debt of a human. With that, she left. Navani, in turn, downed the rest of the cup of wine, her head abuzz with implications. 77. The Proper Legality Seven and a half years ago. Venley ducked out of the way of a patrol of human guards. As she hid in the doorway, she attuned peace in an attempt to calm her emotions. She'd come with her people to sign the treaty, but that, and the feast to mark the occasion, was still hours away. While her people prepared, Venley crept through forbidden hallways in their palace. The pair of guards, chatting in the Alethi tongue, continued on their patrol. She breathed quietly, trying hard not to let the majesty of this human building overwhelm her. Ulim assured her that her people had built equally grand structures once, and they would again. They would build such amazing creations, 
This palace of Kolinar would look like a hut by comparison. Would that she could skip this middle part, where she was required to be in such danger. Planning with Ulim, that she liked. Being famous for revealing war form, that she loved. This creeping about, though. She'd expressly disobeyed human rules, slipping into forbidden sections of the palace. If she were caught, she closed her eyes and listened to the rhythm of peace. Only a little longer, she thought. Just until Ulim's companions reach us, then this will all be over. However, she found herself questioning more now that Ulim had left her gem heart. Ulim spoke of a hidden storm and a coming war, with figures of legend returning to fight. That talk spun in her head and things that seemed so rational a day ago now confused her. Was this really the best way to convince her people to explore forms of power? Wasn't she toying with war and destruction? Why was Ulim so eager? As soon as they'd reached the palace, he'd insisted that she help him gather a bag of gemstones left by his agent here. More spren, like him, ready to be delivered to Venley's scholars. That hadn't been part of the original plan. She'd merely wanted to show her people how dangerous the humans were. But what was she to do? She'd started this boulder rolling down the cliff. If she tried to stop it now, she'd be crushed. So she continued doing as he said. Even if without him in her gem heart, she felt old and dull. Without him, she couldn't hear the new rhythms. She craved them. The world made more sense when she listened to those. There you are, Ulim said, zipping down the hallway. He moved like lightning, crawling along the top of the stone, and he could vanish, making only certain people able to see him. Why are you cringing like a child? Come on, we must be moving. She glanced around the corner. The guards had long since moved on. I shouldn't have to do this, Venley hissed at him. I shouldn't have to expose myself. Someone needs to carry the gemstones, Ulim said. So unless you want me to find someone else to be the greatest among your people, do what I say. Fine. She crept after him, though lately she'd found Ulim's tone increasingly annoying. She disliked his crass, dismissive attitude. He'd better not abandon her again. He had claimed he needed to scout the way, but she was half convinced he wanted her to be discovered. He led her up a stairwell. The rhythm of fortune blessed her, and she emerged onto the top floor without meeting any humans, though she did have to hide in the stairwell as more guards passed. Why must we come all the way up here? She hissed after they passed. Couldn't your friend have brought the gemstones into the basement, where all the other listeners are? I lost contact with her, Ulim admitted. You what? Venley said. He whirled on the floor. Then the lightning rose up to form his little human-like figure. I haven't heard from Axendweth in a few days. I'm certain it's all right. We have a meeting point where she leaves things for me. The gemstones will be there. Venley hummed to betrayal. 
How could he leave out such an important detail? She was sneaking through the human palace, jeopardizing the treaty, based on flawed information? Before she could demand more answers, however, Ulim turned back into a patch of energy on the floor and shot forward. She had no choice but to scramble after him across the hallway, feeling terribly exposed. They should have brought Demid. She liked how he listened to what she said, and he always had a ready compliment. He'd enjoy sneaking about, and she'd feel braver with him along. She wove through the hallways, certain she'd be discovered at any moment. Yet by some miracle, Ulim got her through to a small room with chamber pots scattered across the floor. She pulled out a gemstone and noted a hole in the floor on one side of the room. It looked like they'd dumped waste in here, pouring it into some foul cesspit several stories below. This was her goal? A privy? She gagged and was forced to start breathing through her mouth. Here, Ulim said, crackling on the side of one of the chamber pots. So help me, Venley said to skepticism. If I find human waste inside, she removed the lid. Fortunately, the interior was clean and empty, save for a folded piece of paper. Ulim pulsed to exultation. He'd been worried, it seemed. Venley unfolded the paper and knew the Alethi script well enough to figure out it was a list of cleaning instructions. It's ciphered, Ulim said. Do you think we'd be so stupid as to leave notes in the open where anyone could read them? Let me interpret. He formed into the shape of a human, standing on a table full of pots. She hated that he took a human form, rather than that of a listener. He leaned forward, his eyes narrow. Bother, he said. What? Let me think, female and he snapped. What does it say? Axin Dweth says she's been discovered, he said. She's a very specific and rare kind of specialist. The details need not concern you. But there is apparently another of her kind in the palace, an agent for someone else. They found her and turned the human king against her. She's decided to pull out. Pull out, Venley said. I don't understand the phrasing. She's leaving, or left, perhaps days ago. Left the palace? The planet, you idiot. Ulim blurred, carapace-like barbs breaking his skin and jabbing out, then retracting. It seemed to happen to the beat of one of the new rhythms, perhaps fury. Ulim told her so little. Venley knew there was a way to travel from this world to the place the humans called Damnation, the land of the Void Spren. Many thousands of Spren waited there to help her people, but they couldn't get free without some surge or power, something to pull them across the void between worlds. So what did this mean? Had his agent returned to the world Ulim had come from? Or had she gone someplace else? Was she gone for good? How were they going to transfer Spren across to this land to build power for the storm? More importantly, did Venley want that to happen? He'd promised her forms of power, 
but she'd assumed that she'd bring this to the five after frightening them with how powerful the humans were. Everything was moving so quickly, slipping out of her control. She almost demanded answers, but the way those spikes broke Ulim's skin, the way he pulsed, made her remain quiet. He was a force of nature come alive, and the particular force he exhibited now was destructive. Eventually, his pulsing subsided. The spikes settled beneath his skin. He remained standing on the table, staring at the sheet of paper with the offending words. What do we do? Venley finally asked. I don't know. There is nothing here for us. I, I have to leave. See if I can find answers elsewhere. Leave? Venley said. What about your promises? What about our plans? We have no plans, Ulim said, spinning on her. You said coming here would intimidate your people. Is that happening? Because from what I've seen, they seem to be enjoying themselves, planning to feast and laugh, maybe get into storming bed with the humans. Venley attuned determination, and then it faded to reconciliation. She had to admit it. Her people weren't intimidated, not like she was. Even Esh and I had grown more relaxed, not more worried, as they'd interacted with the humans. These days, Venley's sister didn't even wear war form. Venley wanted to blame her alone, but the problems with the listeners were far bigger than Esh and I. No one else seemed to see what Venley did. They should have been terrified by all the parchmen, the enslaved singers, in the palace. Instead, Venley's people seemed curious. No one saw the threat, Venley did. She didn't understand or believe some of the things Ulim said. But in coming here, Venley realized for herself that the humans could not be trusted. If she didn't do anything, it would be her people, her mother, enslaved to the humans. Ulim formed into crackling lightning and zipped down the table leg and along the floor. She took a step after him, attuning the terrors, but he was gone, out under the door. By the time she looked into the hall, he'd vanished. She closed the door and found herself breathing heavily. She was alone in the enemy's stronghold, having snuck into forbidden hallways. What should she do? What could she do? Wait. Ulim would come back. He didn't, though. And each moment she stood there attuned to the terrors was more excruciating than the last. She had to strike out on her own. Perhaps she could sneak back the way she'd come. She ripped up the note, then dumped it out the shaft with the waist. She attuned determination and slipped from the room. You there. She cringed, attuning mourning. One hallway. She hadn't been able to cross even one hallway. A human soldier in a glistening breastplate marched up, a long, wicked weapon in his hand, a spear, but with an axe's head. Why are you here? He asked her in the Alethi tongue. She played dumb, speaking in her own language. She pointed toward the steps. Perhaps if he thought she couldn't speak Alethi, he'd simply let her go? Instead, he took her roughly by the arm and marched her along the hallway. 
Each time she tried to pull away, he yanked harder, leading her down the steps and through this maze of a palace. He eventually deposited her in a room where several women were writing with span reeds. Venley still wished her people knew how to make those. A gruff older soldier with a proper beard took reports. Found this one on the top floor, the guard said, pushing Venley into a seat. She was poking around in a suspicious way. Does she speak Alethi? asked the man with the beard. No, sir, the man said. He saluted, then returned to his post. Venley sat quietly, trying not to attune rhythms with too much dread. Surely this wouldn't look too bad. She could complain she got lost and wandered up several flights of stairs and snuck past guards when they'd been told several times to stay away. When I find Ulam again, she thought, attuning betrayal. I will. What? What could she do to a spren? What was she without him and his promises? She suddenly felt very, very small. She hated that feeling. You look like one of their scholars, the older man said, his arms folded. You really can't speak Alethi? Or were you playing dumb? I was playing dumb. She immediately regretted speaking. Why had she exposed herself? The man grunted. Their version of attuning amusement, she thought. And what were you doing? Looking for the privy. Dead flat stare. The human version of attuning skepticism. I found it, she said to reconciliation. Eventually. Room with all the pots. I'm going to note this, he said, nodding to one of the scribes who began writing. Your name? Venley, she said. If you were a human, I'd lock you up until someone came for you. Or I'd give you to someone who could get me answers. But that treaty is being signed tonight. I don't want to cause any incidents, do you? No, sir, she said. Then how about this? You sit here, in this room with us, for the next four hours. Once the feast happens and the treaty is signed, we'll see. Everything happens without a problem, and you can go in for the afterfeast. Something goes wrong? Well, then we'll have another conversation, won't we? Venley attuned disappointment, but nothing was going to happen. She'd probably suffer nothing more than a talking to from her sister. Part of her would rather be locked up. She nodded anyway. In truth, she found the man's actions surprisingly rational. Keeping her close would stop anything she might have planned. And if she truly was a lost guest, he wouldn't be in any real trouble for holding her for a few hours. She contemplated insisting she was too important for this. She discarded that idea, caught so quickly after being abandoned by Ulim. Well, it was hard to keep pretending she was strong. The feeling of smallness persisted. The soldier left her to go talk quietly to the women, and Venley made out some of their conversation. He had them report to other guard stations in the palace, informing them he'd picked up a wandering, 
Parshendi, and asking if anyone else had seen individuals entering forbidden or suspicious locations. Venley found herself attuning praise unexpectedly. It was nice to be alone. Lately, Ulim had always been around. She began thinking about how she could clean this up. Go talk to the five. Maybe, despite how much it hurt to admit it, go ask Eshonai for advice. Unfortunately, Ulim soon zipped in through the open door as a trail of red lightning. She hummed confusion, then betrayal, as he moved up her chair leg and formed into a person on her armrest. We have a big problem, Ulim said to her. She hummed a little louder. Oh, get over yourself, girl, he said. Listen, there are heralds in the palace tonight. Heralds? she whispered. Here? They're dead. Hush, he said, glancing over his shoulder at the humans. They're not dead. You have no idea how royally, colossally, incredibly ruined we are. I saw Shalash first and followed her, then ran across not only Kalak, but Nail. I think he saw me. He shouldn't have been able to, but... A figure darkened the doorway to the guard post. The bearded soldier looked up. Venley turned slowly, attuning anxiety. The newcomer was an imposing figure with deep brown skin and a pale mark on his cheek, almost like a listener might have as part of their skin pattern. He was in uniform, though it wasn't of the cut the Alethi wore. He looked at Venley, then pointedly at Ulim, who groaned. Then the man finally looked over at the soldier. Ambassador, the guardsman asked, what do you need? I heard a report that you are holding one of the thinking parchment here, the newcomer said. Is this her? Yes, the guardsman said. But I request, the man said, to have this prisoner released into my care. I don't think I can do that, ambassador, the guardsman said, glancing at the scribes for confirmation. You, I mean, that is a very unusual request. This femalen is important to this night's activities, the man said. He stepped forward, placing something on the nearest scribe's desk. This is a seal of deputation. I have legal jurisdiction in this land, as granted by your king. You will authenticate it. I'm not sure, the scribe woman said. You will authenticate it, the man repeated, perfectly void of emotion or rhythm. He made Venley feel cold, particularly as he turned toward her. Behind him, the scribes began scribbling with their span reeds. The newcomer blocked most of Venley's view of them. Hello, Ulim, the man said in a soft, steady voice. Um, hello. Neil, the spren said. I, um, I didn't expect to see you here. Um, today, anytime, actually, ever. How is, uh, Shalash? Small talk is unnecessary, Ulim, Nail said. We are not friends. 
You persist only because I cannot destroy Spren. The strange man affixed his unblinking gaze on Venley. Listener, do you know what this is? Just another Spren, she said. You are wise, Nail said. He is just another Spren, isn't he? How long have you known him? Venley didn't reply, and she saw Ulim pulse to satisfaction. He did not want her speaking. Bright Lord, one of the scribes called. It appears you are correct. You may requisition this prisoner. We were simply going to hold her until- Thank you, Nail said, taking his seal from the scribe, then walked out into the hall. Follow, listener. Ulim hopped onto her shoulder and grabbed hold of her hair. Go ahead, he whispered, but don't tell him anything. I am in so much trouble. Venley followed the strange man from the guardroom. She'd never seen a human that shade before, though it wasn't a true onyx like a listener pattern. This was more the color of a rock bud shell. How many are there? Nail asked her. Spren, like him. How many have returned? We, Ulim began, I would hear the listener, Nail said. She'd rarely known Ulim to be quiet, and he rarely did as she asked. At this man's rebuke, however, Ulim fell immediately silent. Ulim was frightened of this being. So did that mean the songs about them were true? A herald. Alive. Ulim was right. The return had begun. The humans would soon be marching to destroy her people. It was the only conclusion she could come to based on her knowledge of the songs and based on meeting this man. Storms. Her people needed forms of power. And to get them, she somehow had to navigate this conversation without being murdered by this creature. Answer my question. The herald said, how many spren like him are there? How many void spren have returned? I have seen only this one, Venley said. It is impossible that he has remained on Roshar all these years, Nail said. It has been a long time, I believe. Generations, perhaps, since the last true desolation. How could this creature not remember how long it had been since the returns ended? Perhaps he was so far above mortals that he didn't measure time the same way. I thought it impossible for them to cross the distance between worlds, Nail said. Could it have been? No, impossible. I've been vigilant. I've been careful. You must tell me, how did you accomplish his return? So cold, a voice with no rhythms and no human emotions. Yet those words, he was raving. Perhaps it wasn't that he measured time differently, but that he was addled. Though she'd been considering telling him the truth, that instinct retreated before his dead words. She might not trust Ulim completely, but she certainly couldn't turn to this herald instead. We didn't do anything to return them, she said. 
taking a gamble based on what he'd said earlier. It was what you did. Impossible, Nail repeated. Ishar said only a connection between the worlds could cause a bridge to open, and Tarn has not given in. I would know if he had. Do not blame us, Venli said, for your failure. Nail kept his eyes forward. So, Gavilar's plan is working. The fool, he will destroy us all. Nail sneered, a sudden and unexpected burst of emotion. That foolish idiot of a man. He lures us with promises, then breaks them by seeking that which I told him was forbidden. Yes, I heard it tonight. The proof I need, I know. I know. Storms, Venley thought. He really is mad. I have been vigilant, the man ranted, but not vigilant enough. I must take care. If the bonds start forming again, if we let the pathway open. He suddenly stopped in the hallway, making her halt beside him. His face became flat again, emotionless. I believe I must offer you a service, listener. The king is planning to betray your people. What? She said. You can prevent disaster, Nail said. There is a man here in the city tonight. I have been tracking him due to his unusual circumstances. He possesses an artifact that belonged to a friend of mine. I have sworn not to touch said artifact for... Reasons that are unimportant to you. Confusion thrummed in Venley's ears, but on her shoulder, Ulim had perked up. I have legal jurisdiction here to act on behalf of the king, Nail said. I cannot, however, take specific action against him. Tonight I found reason to have him killed, but it will take me months of planning to achieve the proper legality. Fortunately, I have read your treaty. There is a provision allowing one party to legally break it and attack the other. Should they have proof, the other is conspiring against them. I know for a fact that Gavilar is planning to use this very provision to assault your people in the near future. I give you this knowledge, sworn by a herald of the Almighty. You have proof that he is conspiring against you, and may act. The man who can help you is a slave for sale in the market. The person who owns him is hoping some of the king's wealthy visitors will want to pick up new servants before the feast. You have little time remaining. The slave you want is the sole shin man among the crowd. The gemstones your people wear as ornaments will be enough to buy him. I don't understand, Venley said. Nail looked at Ulim on her shoulder. This Shin man bears Jezrian's blade, and he is expertly trained in its employ. He looked back to Venley. I judge you innocent of any crime, using provision 87 of the Alethi Code, pardon of a criminal who has a more vital task to perform for the good of the whole. He then strode away, leaving them in the hall. That was, Ulim said. Wow, he's far gone. 
as bad as some of the fused. But that was well done, Venley. I'm trying not to sound too surprised. I think you may have fooled someone who is basically a god. It's an old trick, Ulim, she said. Everyone, humans, listeners, and apparently gods, deep down suspects that every failure is their own. If you reflect blame on them, most people will assume they are responsible. Maybe I gave up on you too easily, he said. Old Jezrian's blade is here, is it? Curious. What does that mean? Let's say, Ulim told her, your people were to start a war with the humans. Would that lead your people to the desperation we want? Would they take the forms we offer? Attack the humans? Venli said to confusion. They stood alone in the hallway, but she still hushed her voice. Why would we do what that herald said? We're not here to start a war, Ulim. I merely want to get my people ready to face one, should the humans try to destroy us. Ulim crackled with lightning, then moved up her arm toward her gem heart. She hesitated to let him in. He worked in strange ways, not according to the rules. He could move in and out of her without a high storm to facilitate the transformation. He began to vibrate energy through her. You were so clever, Venley, tricking Nail. This is going to work, you and me, this bond. But a war? I don't care why Nail thought we should attack the king, Ulim said. It has given me a seed of an idea. It's not his plan, but your plan we're following. We came here to make your people see how dangerous the humans are. But they are foolish, and you are wise. You can see how much of a threat they are. You need to show them. Yes, Venli said. That was her plan. Ulim slipped into her gem heart. The humans are planning to betray you, Ulim said. The herald confirmed it. We must strike at them first. And in so doing, make our people desperate, Venli said. When the humans retaliate, it will threaten our destruction. Yes, then I could persuade the listeners they need forms of power. They must accept our help or be annihilated. Exactly. A war would likely mean the deaths of thousands, Venli said, attuning anxiety. The rhythm felt small and weak, distant. On both sides, your people will be restored to their true place as rulers of this entire land, Ulim said. Yes, blood will spill first. But in the end, you will rule, Venli. Can you pay this small price now for untold glories in the future? If it meant being strong enough to never again be weak, never again feeling as small as she had today, Yes, she said, attuning destruction. What do we do? Shalan's sketchbook. Inkspren. Inkspren weapons may or may not be sheathed and sometimes hang in the air at their sides or backs, 
not needing to be attached physically to remain with them. They do not wear armor. Instead, the armor is part of their form and sometimes defies human concepts of anatomy. It reminds me less of steel and more of shell or carapace. Each surface has an iridescent sheen, a rainbow shimmer that moves independently of the surrounding lights. In the physical realm, inkspren can change their size, but not their shape. They can be as large as a human or as small as a speck of dust, but they will always look like themselves. 78. The High Judge So, words. Why words now? Why do I write? Shalon hurried into the room she shared with Adolin, putting the strange experience with Sixteen behind her. No need to think about that other's spren, the cryptic Deadeye. Stay focused and don't let Radiance slip out again. Pattern shadowed her, closing the door with a click. Aren't you supposed to be meeting with Adolin right now? Yes, Shalon said, kneeling beside the bed and pulling out her trunk. That makes this the best time to contact Marais, as we don't risk Adolin walking in on us. He will wonder where you are. I'll make it up to him later, Shalon said, unlocking the trunk and looking in. Well, Pattern said, walking up. No, I'm Shalon. Are you? You feel wrong, Shalon. Mm. You must listen. I did use the cube. I have a copy of the key to your trunk. Wit helped me. It's no matter, Shalon said. Done, over, don't care. Let's move on and- Pattern took her hands, kneeling beside her. His pattern, once so alien to her eyes, was now familiar. She felt as if by staring at its shifting lines, she could see secrets about how the world worked, maybe even about how she worked. Please, Pattern said. Let me tell you. We don't have to talk about your past. I was wrong to try to force you. Yes, I did take the cube to talk to Wit. He has a cube like it too, Shalon. He told me. I was so worried about you. I didn't know what to do. So I went to him, and he said we could talk with the cube, if I was worried, mm, about what was happening with you. He said I was very funny. But when I talked to him last, he warned me. He's been spied on by the ghost bloods. The things I told him, another heard. That was how Marais knew things. You talked to Wit, Shalon whispered. And a spy overheard? That, that means... None of your friends are traitors, Pattern said. Except me. Only a little, though. I am sorry. No spy. And Pattern, 
Was this another lie? Was she getting so wrapped up in them that she couldn't see what was true? She gripped his two long hands. She wanted so badly to trust again. Your trust kills, Shalon. The dark part of her thought. The part she named formless. Except it wasn't formless. She knew exactly what it was. For now, she retreated and released Vale and Radiant. Vale immediately took control and gasped, putting her hand to her head. Storms, she whispered. That was a strange experience. I have made things worse, Pattern said. I am very foolish. You tried to help, Vale said. But you should have come to me. I'm Vale, by the way. I could have helped you. Pattern hummed softly. Vale got the sense that he didn't trust her completely. Well, she wasn't certain she trusted her own mind completely, so there was that. There's a lot to think about in what you said, Vale said. For now, please don't keep anything more from us, all right? Pattern's pattern slowed, then quickened, and he nodded. Great. Vale took a deep breath. Well, that was over. Who killed Ela? Shalon whispered from inside. Vale hesitated. Perhaps Pattern was the one who moved the cube all those times, Shalon said. And he's the reason Marais knew about the seed we planted about the corrupted Spren. But someone killed Ela. Who was it? Storms. There was more to this mess, a lot more. Vale, however, needed time to digest it. So for now, she put all of that aside and picked up the communication cube. She repeated the incantation. Deliver to me Marais' cube and transfer my voice to him. It took longer this time than others. She didn't know what the difference was. She sat there some ten minutes before Marais finally spoke. I trust you have only good news to report, little knife, his voice said. It's bad news, but you're getting it anyway, she said. This is Vale, with Pattern here. We've eliminated the final human in lasting integrity from consideration. Either Rastaris has learned to disguise himself beyond my ability to spot him, or he's not here. How certain are you of this, Marais said calm. She'd never seen him get upset at bad news. Depends, she said. Like I said, he could have disguised himself. Or maybe your intel is wrong. It's possible, Marais admitted. Communication between realms is difficult, and information travels slowly. Have you asked if any humans left the fortress recently? They claimed the last human who left was five months ago, she said. But that was Azure, not Rastari's. I know her. I've described our quarry to several honor spren, but they say the description is too vague and that many humans look alike to them. I'm inclined to think they're telling the truth. They completely neglected to mention that 16, the person I've spent the last few days planning to intercept, was Shin. Troubling, Marais said. You've been vague in your answers to me, Vale said. Let me ask clearly. 
Could Rastaris have become a lightweaver? Cryptics have different requirements for bonding than most radiants. I highly doubt Rastaris would have joined any radiant order, Moraes said. It's not in his nature. I suppose, however, that we can't discount the possibility. There are variations on light weaving in the Cosmere that do not require a spren. Plus, the honor blades exist and are poorly tracked these days, even by our agents. I thought they were all in Shinovar, except the one Moash wields. They were. Moraes said it simply, directly, with an implication. She wasn't getting any more information on that topic, not unless she finished this mission, whereupon he had promised to answer all her questions. You should equip yourself with Stormlight, Moraes suggested. If you have not found Rastaris, there is a chance he knows you are there, and that could be dangerous. He is not the type to fight unless cornered, but once pushed, there are few beings as dangerous on this planet. Great, wonderful, Vale said. Nice to know I have to start sleeping with one eye open. He could have warned me. Considering your paranoia, would you have done anything differently? Moraes sounded amused. You're probably right about the stormlight, Vale said. The honor spren do have a store of it. They let us use it to heal Aderlin. Makes me wonder where they obtained all the perfect gemstones to hold it for so long. They've had millennia to gather them, little knife, Moraes said. And they love gemstones, perhaps for the same reason we admire swords. During the days of the Radiance, some even believed the stories of the Stone of Ten Dawns and spent lifetimes hunting it. How will you obtain Stormlight? from these honor spren. I'll begin working on a plan, she said. Excellent. And how is your stability, little knife? She thought about Shalon taking control, locking Vale and Radiant away somehow. Could be better, she admitted. Answers will help free you, Moraes said, once you've earned them. Perhaps. Vale said. Or perhaps you'll be surprised at what I already know. The trouble wasn't getting answers. It was finding the presence of mind to accept them. Now, was there a way she could confirm what Pattern had said? About Wit and the ghost bloods spying on him? She toyed with the idea, but decided not to say anything. She didn't want to tell Moraes too much. Her musings were interrupted by the sound of people shouting. That was uncommon here in Honor Spren territory. I need to go, she told Moraes. Something's happening. The Honor Spren had a multitude of reasons for delaying Adolin's trial. Their first and most obvious excuse was the need to wait for the High Judge, a Spren who was out on patrol. Adolin had spent weeks assuming this was the Stormfather because of things they'd said. Yet when he'd mentioned that the other day, the Honor Spren had laughed. So now he had no idea who or what the High Judge was, and their answers to him were strange. The High Judge was some kind of Spren, that seemed clear. 
but not an honor spren. The judge was of a variety that was very rare. In any case, waiting for the high judge to return gave the honor spren time to prepare documentation, notes, and testimonies. Had that all been ready, though, they wouldn't have allowed the trial to proceed yet, because Adolin, they explained, was an idiot. Well, they didn't say it in so many words. Still, he couldn't help but suspect that was how they felt. He was woefully ignorant of what they considered proper trial procedure. Thus, he found himself in today's meeting. Every two days, he had an appointment for instruction. The honor spren were quite clear. His offer, worded as it had been, let them condemn him as a traitor and murderer. Though that hadn't completely been his intent, this trial would let them pin the sins of the ancient radiance on him. Before they did so, they wanted him to understand proper trial procedure. What strange beings. He stepped softly through the library, a long flat building on the northern plane of lasting integrity. Honorspren liked their books, judging by the extensive collection, but he rarely saw them in here. They seemed to enjoy owning the books, treating them like relics to be hoarded. His tutor, on the other hand, was a different story. She stood on a stepstool counting through books on an upper shelf. Her clothing, made of her substance, was reminiscent of a Thalen tradeswoman's attire, a knee-length skirt with blouse and shawl. Unlike an honor spren, her coloring was an ebony black, with a certain sheen in the right light, like the variegated colors oil made on a sword blade. She was an ink spren. Yasna had bonded one, though Adolin had never seen him. This one called herself Blended, a name that felt peculiar to him. Ah, hi, Prince, she said, noting him. You are. I am, he said. During their weeks talking together, he'd grown mostly accustomed to her distinctive style of speaking. Good, good, she said, climbing down the steps. Our time nearly is not. Come, we must talk. Our time nearly is not, Adolin said, hurrying alongside her. She was shorter than most honor spren and wore her hair, pure black like the rest of her, pinned up in something that wasn't quite a braid. Though her skin was mostly monochrome black, faint variations outlined her features, making her round face and small nose more visible. Yes, she said. The honor spren have set the date for your trial. It is. When? Three days. The high judge is here, then? Adolin asked as they reached their study table. He must be returning soon, she said. Perhaps he already is in this place, so we must make decisions. She sat without ceasing her torrent of words. You are not ready. Your progress is not, High Prince Adolin. I do not say this to be insulting. It simply is. I know, he said, sitting down. Honor Spren Law is complex. I wish you could speak for me. It is not their way. It seems designed to be frustrating. Yes, she agreed. This is unsurprising, as it was devised by a stuck-up bunch of prim, overly polished buttons. There was no love lost between Inkspren and Honorspren. And Blended was supposedly among the more diplomatic of her type. 
She was the official Inkspren emissary to lasting integrity. I know an honor spren in my realm, Adolin said. She can be interesting at times, but I wouldn't call her prim. The ancient daughter, Blended asked. She's not the only one whose personality is, as you speak. Many honor spren used to be like that. Others still are. But lasting integrity and those who here are have had a strong effect on many honor spren. They preach isolation. Others listen. It's so extreme, Adolin said. They must see there is a better way of dealing with their anger at humans. Agreed. A better solution is, I would simply kill you. Adolin started. Excuse me? If a human tries to bond me, Blended said, flipping through the books in her stack, I will attack him and kill him. This better solution is... I don't think Radiance Force bonds, Adolin said. They would coerce. I would strike first. Your kind are not trustworthy. She set aside one of her books, shaking her head. Regardless, I am worried about your training. It is weak, through no fault of yours. The honor spren will use the intricacies of their law against you to your detriment. You will be as a child trying to fight a duel. I believe trials among your kind are more direct. Basically, you go before the light eyes in charge and plead your case, Adolin said. He listens, maybe confers with witnesses or experts, then renders judgment. Brief, simple, she said. Very flawed, but simple. The honor spread of this region like their rules. But perhaps a better solution is... She held up one of the books she'd been looking through when he arrived. We can motion for a trial by witness, a variety more akin to what you know already. That sounds great, Adolin said, relaxing. If he had to listen to one more lecture, including terms like exculpatory evidence and compensatory restitution, he would ask them to execute him and be done with it. Blended took notes as she spoke. It is well I spent these weeks training you in basics. This will prepare you for your best hope of victory, which is this format. Therefore, before I explain, recite to me your general trial strategy. They'd gone over this dozens of times to the point that Adolin could have said it backward. He didn't mind. You drilled your soldiers in battle formations until they could do maneuvers in their sleep, and this trial would be like a battle. Blended had repeatedly warned him to be wary of verbal ambushes. I need to persuade them that I cannot be held accountable for the actions of the ancient radiance, Adolin said, that they cannot shun me or my father because of things done by ancient humans. In order to accomplish this, I will prove my character, I will prove that the modern radiance are unconnected to the old orders, and I will prove that our actions in the face of the current crisis are proof of the honor men display. Blended nodded. We will choose a trial by witness. Assuming your motion is accepted, the trial will happen in three phases over three days. The first day, the high judge is presented with three testimonies against your cause. The next day, you give your testimony. The final day, accusers are allowed one rebuttal, then judgment is requested. This format is not often chosen because it allows so much weight of testimony against you. However, factoring in how weak your grasp of legal systems is, well... This choice is best. Adolin felt a tremble deep inside. 
He wished for a fight he could face with sword in hand. But that was the trouble. Any given Radiant could do better than he at such a fight, so his expertise with the sword was effectively obsolete. He could not train himself to the level of a Radiant. They could heal from wounds and strike with supernatural grace and strength. The world had entered an era where simply being good at swordplay was not enough. That left him to find a new place. Father always complained about being unsuited for diplomacy. Adolin was determined not to make the same complaint. If I might plead my case on the second day, he said, then I'm for it. The other methods you suggested would require me to understand too much of their law. Yes, Blended said, though I worry that in giving testimony you will incriminate yourself. Worse, you'll risk asking questions of the audience, presenting an opening for their condemnations. You could end up one man facing a crowd of experts in the law and rhetoric. I have to speak for myself, though, Adolin said. I fail to see how I can achieve what I want without talking to them. I need to prove myself and appeal to their honor. Blended flipped through pages of notes. He'd noticed that when she wouldn't look at him, it meant she had something difficult to say. What? Adolin asked her. You believe much in their honor, Prince Adolin. Your sense of justice is. They are honor spren, he said. Don't they basically have to be honorable? A conundrum is in this thing, Blended said. Yes, they are honor spren, but honor isn't something that, that is. What do you mean? Men define honor, Blended said, and no god can enforce it no longer. Beyond that, spren like us are not mindless things. Our will is strong. Our perceptions mold our definitions of concepts such as honor and right and wrong, just as with humans. You're saying that what they perceive as honorable might not be what I perceive as honorable. Sill warned me as much. Yes, she said. What they are defines honor to them. Whatever they are. That's frightening, Adolin admitted. But there is goodness to them. They care for the dead eyes, even Maya, with great concern and attention. Hmm, yes, Blended said. That one. Did another spren tell you her name? No, she told me herself. Dead eyes don't speak. This is. You all keep saying that, but you're wrong, Adolin said. I heard her in my mind. Only once, true, but she said her name. Maya Lauren. She's my friend. Blended cocked her head. Curious. Very curious. Deep down, the honest Bren must want to help. Surely they'll listen to me. Surely I can make them see. I will give you the best chance I can, she said. But please understand, Spren, all Spren, fear you with good reason. In order to prove you wrong, they need only prove that bonding men is a risk, that past failings of men justify wariness. Everything is a risk, Adolin said. Yes, which is why this trial is not strong for you. 
This truth is, Prince Adolin. To hear you say it like that, he said, trying to laugh about it. It sounds like I have no chance. She closed her book and did not respond. He took a deep breath. All right, how do we proceed, he asked. I suspect the best thing is to discover if the High Judge's return is. Blended stood up, leaving the books on the table as she strode toward the doors. Adolin was expected to keep up. She claimed to hate the honor spren because of an ancient rivalry, but she sure did act like them. Neither gave much deference to human titles, for example. Adolin didn't consider himself stuck up, but couldn't they treat him with a little more respect? Outside, as always, he had that moment of jarring disconnect, his brain trying to reconcile that down wasn't down and up wasn't up. That people walked along all four faces inside the rectangular tower. He doubted he could ever feel at ease in this place. The Spren claimed it was not surge binding that let them walk on the walls here. The long-standing presence of the honor Spren instead allowed the tower to choose a different type of natural law. Perhaps that sort of talk made sense to Shallan. Where was she, anyway? She was often late to these tutoring meetings, but she usually showed up. Blended led him across to the corner where the northern plain met the western plain. Most of the official buildings were on the western one. Adolin always found this part curious. He had to step out and put one leg on the wall. He followed that by leaning back as he lifted his other leg, feeling like he was about to fall. Instead, everything seemed to rotate, and he found himself standing on another plane. You do that better than most humans, Blended noted. They often seem nauseated by the process. He shrugged, then followed as she walked him toward a row of short buildings clustered near the base of the tower. Most buildings in lasting integrity were only one story. He wasn't certain what happened if they got too tall. Were you in danger of falling off? They passed groups of honor spren, and he thought about what Blended had said regarding their natures. Not simply of honor, of honor as defined by the spren themselves. Well, maybe they weren't all as stuffy as they seemed. He'd catch laughter or a hint of a mischievous grin. Then an older uniformed honor spren would walk past and everyone would grow solemn again. These creatures seemed trapped between an instinct for playfulness and their natures as the spren of oaths. He anticipated another tedious discussion with the honor spren who managed his case, but before Adolin and Blended entered the building of justice, she stopped and cocked her head. She waved for him to follow in another direction, and he soon saw why. A disturbance was occurring on the ground plane near the gates into the city. A moment of panic made him wonder if his friends had decided to rescue him against his wishes, followed by a deeper worry that all those dead eyes outside had snapped and decided to rush the fortress. It was neither. A group of spren crowded around a newly arrived figure. The High Judge, Adolin gasped. Yes, Blended said. Excellent. You can make your petition to him. She walked that direction down along the face of the western plain. Adolin followed until he saw the details of the figure everyone was making such a fuss over. 
The high judge, it appeared, was human. Human, Vale said, stopping in place. That's impossible. She squinted at the figure below and didn't need to get close to see what her gut was already telling her. A short, alethi man with thinning hair. That was him, the one she'd been hunting. The high judge was Rastari's. Mmm, Pattern said. They did say the high judge was a spren. Perhaps the honor spren lied? Mmm. Vale stepped up to a small crowd of honor spren who had gathered on the southern plain to gawk at the newcomer. One was Lucintia, the honor spren assigned to show Vale around on her first day in the fortress. She was a shorter spren, with hair kept about level with the point of her chin. She didn't wear a uniform, but the stiff jacket and trousers she preferred might as well have been one. Vale elbowed her way over to Lucintia, earning shocked glances from the honor spren, who generally didn't crowd in such a way. Pattern followed in her wake. That can't be the high judge, Vale said, pointing. I specifically asked if the high judge was human. He's not, Lucintia said. But he might have the form of a man, Lucintia said. But he is an eternal and immortal spren who blesses us with his presence. That is, Kalak, called Kalek Ilin, among your people. Herald of the Almighty. He commanded us not to tell people he was here, and ordered us specifically not to speak of him to humans, so we were not allowed to answer your questions until you saw him for yourself. One of the heralds. Damnation. The man Marais had sent her to find, and she suspected the man he wanted her to kill, was one of the heralds. <laughs>